You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Richard Florida, professor at the University of Toronto, co-founder of City Lab, author of many books, including Rise of the Creative Class. Welcome back to the Strong Downs podcast. It's oh man, it's always <laughs> great, just absolutely great to be with you, and it's great seeing you. It's been way too long, Chuck. It has been. It's fantastic to see you. You are one of the people that I follow on Twitter. You had a, an interesting thread the other day that went back to the creative class, and it occurred to me as I'm reading this that I'm old enough now to recognize how radical what has really become like a mainstream notion, the idea that talent attracts industry. Can you take us back to when you wrote The Rise of the Creative Class and how unorthodox and, and really crazy the supposition you put forward was? I was working on that book more than 20 years ago. Sure. We've kind of come full circle. I mean, in what was considered just insane then, has become absolutely normal now. And this idea that talent is the driving force in, in economic development, urban, regional, rural, suburban, Chuck, that was seen as nuts. So what I was doing is I was basically trying to make sense of what I was seeing in Pittsburgh. And it's very interesting. I was talking to kids at Carnegie Mellon where I taught and they kept saying, I don't want to live in Pittsburgh. Guess where they wanted to go. It wasn't the Bay Area. It wasn't New York. It was Austin, Texas, kind of the hot spot today. Sure. And that book is really, if you read it closely, is, is really my comparison of the city I love, Pittsburgh, which I thought had wonderful industrial texture and neighborhoods and great rivers, and kind of Austin, a place that was hot and boiling and rained a lot and didn't have any of those rivers. It was right. lovely. And my kids from Carnegie Mellon, these software engineers and business students were going from Pittsburgh to Austin. I wanted to understand why. So I puzzled over this a lot. I had no easy answer. And, and one day it came to me that my whole field had studied something very basic. The mechanism of economic development in my field of urban and economic geography or urbanism was where firms locate or where firms create a cluster that creates jobs and people move. Of course, that wasn't happening in Pittsburgh. What was happening is my kids were going to places like Austin because they were interesting places to go and they had lots of good jobs and they felt there were lots of exciting things to do and they could ride a bike, they could go out at night, all these kind of cliches now. And so I said, it's people location or talent location that mattered. And like, if you read the reviews of that book, yeah, they're really different than the criticism of my work today. It's like, Florida has lost his mind. He doesn't understand a chicken from an egg. People go where jobs are. Cities will never come back. He's, he's completely bonkers. As soon as the next economic, financial, whatever crisis comes around, all of these people who he thinks are going to cities like Austin and Seattle and San Francisco and urban areas will go back to their suburban jobs. My big error in that book is that I, as I listened to some of that criticism and I completely underpredicted the force and velocity and ferocity of the urban revival. So now we're like full circle. And even though there's a big issue of will cities grow, will cities decline, will suburbs grow, will people move to new second and third, third metros? There is no question in anybody's mind that where talent goes, that's where economic development goes. And that's why people are so focused on competing for remote workers today. Right, right. I want to get your insights on what's going on. I think what we would call the superstar cities in North America, the, the New York City, the San Francisco. I just read an article this morning about how Zillow searches from those zip codes 
of places like Miami, Austin, Atlanta are way, way up. There are people I am friends with in these places who are pushing back on this. I realize I'm asking you a big question about migration and I'm more asking you to react to what you see going on now than to predict the future. But what do you think is happening in these places that have been plagued by unaffordability, lots of issues, but yet have been the places that have attracted that talent over the last couple of decades? You know, there's just a lot of noise in the environment now that we're still in a pandemic, although rapidly coming out. I mean, the number of people I know that have been vaccinated already is just mind boggling to me. And so, look, you know, we're in the United States, which is different than most other places on the planet. We're going to be coming out of this thing clearly by summer. I never really actually devoted any attention to the role of pandemics in shaping urban life. You know, not as an undergraduate. That would be a very niche specialty. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 40 years in this and never really thought about it. You know, and if you look back, there were pretty horrific plagues in Europe, the Black Plague, the Bubonic Plague, you know, the cholera epidemics. Some of those plagues in the Middle Ages killed off 40 to 50 percent of the populations of some urban centers in, in, say, Italy. They didn't really damp down the arc of urbanization. You know, when I talked to Ed Glazer about this, he's like, and he's writing a book now on the survival of the city, which is kind of interesting follow-up to Triumph of the City, right? Right. Um, you know, he says, you know, way back when before Christ, yeah, there were some really vicious plagues that kind of derailed urbanization for a while. But at that point, a fractional percentage of humankind was urban. We're talking about an arc of urbanization, which has gone from 5% of the world urbanized, say, two centuries ago, to 10 or so percent of the world urbanized a century ago, to now well more than half of the world urbanized, and projection is, you know, three quarters of the world urbanized in another 50 years, half century to century. So look, this thing isn't going to damp down the arc of urbanization. And anyone who writes off New York or London really needs their head examined. You know, the smart people will be buying up property. And, you know, the death of New York and London has been predicted in the past 20 years, at least four or five times. The 2001 tech bubble, 9-11, certainly New York was going to be dead and nobody was going to go there or the threat of terrorist attacks. Certainly after 2008, when I wrote this Atlantic cover story on how the crash will reshape uh, geography. And basically, my editors wanted me to write about how London and New York would collapse and how the financial markets would move to places like Charlotte. And I said, Bupkis. New York and London will come back stronger. I, again, under-anticipated how strong they would come back. And, and look, London and New York have survived far worse than this. Uh, London, you know, my dad was there, stationed in World War II. London survived the bombings and the Blitz. Look at Berlin. Let's, let's just take Berlin. Right. Berlin has ground. survived yeah. fascism, a freaking bombardment, mm-hmm. occupation, partition, and it's still one of the three or four best cities in Europe. So you're not going to kill off New York or London. They may get younger. They may get more affordable. People who didn't want to be in those cities, these kind of suburbanites who went there because it was she-she and they could live in gated communities, gated luxury tower, they'll leave. But I, I fully expect superstar cities will get better, more affordable, more creative and better. And I think it's just nuts, these people who are saying it will destroy London and New York. There's this the fog of the pandemic. And by the way, I just think there's a lot of anti-urban sentiment in America. Like I, it just comes out. Like every time you can poke fun at urbanism, you will, and predict it's down. And the other thing I think that's going on, and you know, I'm talking to you right now from our winter place in Miami Beach, okay, uh, where we came, the kids are in pod school, life is kind of bizarrely in kind of a different kind of normal. So I'm watching this happen in Miami in real time. And a lot of what's going on, I think, is very high net worth people in real estate, finance, and tech, 
who are very right oriented, who are very conservative and never liked New York and San Francisco to begin with, always kind of disliked, had a very strong distaste for progressive politics. And I think those folks, what they're doing is saying, look, we'll move out of New York and California. We'll move to Austin and Miami. By the way, we should go back very different places, like polar yeah. opposite places. Yeah. And, and what we'll do is if you don't give us tax cuts, if you don't reduce your social welfare state, if you don't give us a business friendly climate, you know, we'll continue to threaten you with capital flight. And, and what we're seeing is a, is a bunch of the 0.00001%. You look at what's selling here in Miami, it's houses $20 million and above. Like that is a number that is so insane to me. And people will buy these things on Zoom. Like I talk to real estate people. They will call up on Zoom and say, do you have a house for me that's a house on the bay and it's $20 million, I'll take it. Right. And, and look, it's, it's a game they're playing. They're saying to these big expensive cities, if you don't shape up to what we want, if you don't give us our way, it's kind of like Amazon HQ2, what Amazon was saying to Seattle, treat us better in our words. Don't impose a wage tax on us. Don't make us pay for affordable housing. Let us build whatever we want. If not, we're going to take our headquarters and go elsewhere. This is a movie we've seen before. It happened in Pittsburgh when the robber barons got tired of, of the U.S. steelworkers and machine politics. We saw it in Detroit when the big three capitalists like Henry Ford said, the hell with you guys in the UAW. We want cheaper labor. We want less restrictions. And look, it's just sad. And there's a big hype machine in America that's saying, oh, my God, this is great. We're looking at new places. But really what a lot of these fellows are doing is trying to encourage a race to the bottom, which is just kind of terrible. So if you are New York and San Francisco, do you stay the course? Like, how do you respond? Because clearly, I mean, these places have had affordability issues. I mean, the MTA has in New York struggled financially. There's a bunch of issues there that are very real. I hear you about the hype of these other ancillary things that uh, are driving people. What do you do if you're New York? What do you do if you're San Francisco? Yeah, just like Austin and Miami are very different. New York and San Francisco are very different. So let me first talk about San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, San Francisco has some bigger and I think more fundamental challenges to New York. It is not the world's greatest city. It is not the world's greatest financial center. It is the world's largest and most important tech hub. By the way, that tech hub has long been not in Silicon Valley. The migration of, of tech startups out of Silicon Valley to San Francisco, which is the San Francisco, the city, which is the dominant startup center. And Silicon Valley has Apple and Facebook and Google and big headquarters. So it's downtown San Francisco that's been the incubator. To my mind, San Francisco could go one of two ways. It can either grow up and become a real city, what means a bigger city with denser development, bigger buildings, more building, more transit. It could become more like New York or London, or the risk is I think it becomes sort of like Pittsburgh or Detroit. The risk I see, the downside risk, I'm not predicting this will happen. I don't sure, think sure. it will happen. San Francisco is quite beautiful. It's surrounded by the wine country. It's a waterfront community. It has a high level of natural and urban amenities, some of the best food in the world. But it does look to me more like something that could go the way of Pittsburgh or Detroit, a dominant industrial cluster or economic cluster that has its moment in the sun, so to speak, and declines. I don't think that will happen, but it could happen. New York, I have no worries about. It will face some fundamental tax challenges, fiscal challenges, challenges with transit, but it will remake itself. I put the challenge to New York similar, but not as bad as the challenge of deindustrialization. New York was one of the manufacturing capitals of the world. It survived widespread deindustrialization and came back as the world's leading center of finance, 
technology, one of the world's leading centers of technology, media, entertainment. But they're very real challenges. I'm trying to help. Uh, I've been writing a report that says Pinsky on sort of how New York can recover. It's been taking a long time because the challenges are, as you said, very big. Let me, let me phrase it this way. And I think you nailed it with affordability. What, what is New York really suffering from when you think about it? Too many people want to be there, right? That's, yeah, been that, the... that's the problem. And, right. and let me put it this way. <laughs> I have two kids. Yeah. A lot of my friends have two and three kids. If you ask them where they'd really like to live, I'll bet you 90% of these people or 75% of these people would say, I'll live in Tribeca, Chelsea, the village. I can't afford it. I have a friend who works in the financial markets. He just has two kids. They lived in Chelsea. They had a rental. He makes a lot of money. He's like, I can't afford the lifestyle my family wants in New York City. So I'll move to Charlotte, Miami, a Westchester suburb, a New Jersey suburb. If I said, you know, I just said to, to folks in New York City, if you want to know the problem, if New York City is affordable to families, they'll move there. It, it would be for many people the first choice. The problem is to get an apartment that has the space that most families desire, New York is not in the cards. So that's why they move. So New York has a big affordability problem. It has a tax problem, which is only partly of its own making. And look, this is the vexing one to me. I don't have an answer here. If you're Joe Biden, do you restore the SALT deduction? And let me tell you the two sides. The SALT deduction for folks listening is the ability to deduct on your taxes your federal taxes, state and local tax deduction. As someone who lives in Canada, I can deduct my Canadian taxes from my US IRS tax return. But if you pay state and local income taxes in New York or California, which are 10 to 15% of your income, roundly speaking, I don't have the exact number at my fingertips, right. you can no longer deduct them because Trump stuck it to those cities, right? Trump said, I'm going to stick it to you progressive cities. Now the question is, do you restore that ability to deduct that? On the one hand, many progressive economists say no. That is a regressive tax. That why would you give rich people a tax benefit to live in expensive cities? On the other hand, the people who manage those cities who happen to be on the political left say, we need that in order to survive. What I think it means is that these cities need a new revenue tool. Right. That this revenue tool that presupposed that business and people needed to be co-located. I think what remote work does is break the back of that and, you know, I wrote about this. The people who are most likely to take advantage of remote work aren't you and me, although we might. Right. And the 10 or 20 or 30 percent of us who do knowledge work, the people who are most likely to go remote are the CEOs and the business owners and the financiers. What we're seeing in Miami is not the relocation of remote workers like us. We're seeing the relocation of the 0.00001% who are saying, I'm not going to pay the New York City taxes or the San Francisco taxes. I'll leave my teams in New York, San Francisco, wherever. And I'll relocate. By the way, I just have done a lot of Zooms lately. When I go on a Zoom with a technology company or a real estate development firm or a financial firm, what I find is this. There is a huge cluster of workers in New York. Some of them have moved to Brooklyn or the suburbs, of New sure. Jersey, but in the New York metro. There's a huge cluster of workers in the Bay Area. And then there's like one person in Miami, three people in Austin, a person in Bozeman, a person in Tulsa, a person in Bentonville. Like the clusters of work are still in those big cities. We brought up Austin and you said Austin, Miami are two different stories. If Miami's the 0.001% buying, you know, sight unseen $20 million homes, which is a bizarre concept to ponder, what's going on in Austin? Because Austin has, has been this very strange growth machine for a long time. You've got Elon Musk moving to Austin. You've got, uh, you know, all the hype of uh, this is kind of like the Silicon Valley escape valve 
Is this a lot the same thing or is there something fundamentally different? Let's compare the two, Miami and, and Austin. First of all, I love Miami. Um, I love Miami Beach. I didn't think I would. What happened is we moved to Toronto and Toronto's really cold in the winter, like really, really cold. <laughs> so my wife and I decided we needed a winter getaway place. And many of our Canadian friends, believe it or not, have a place, in, they're called Snowbirds. So we picked Miami Beach because it's close to a great airport. I could commute back to school whenever I needed to. The kids and my wife could stay here. And we ended up falling in love with the place. And until recently, it didn't have any of this. It was just a lovely winter getaway. Miami, by the way, if you look at my numbers, the creative class has probably the lowest percentage of the knowledge professional creative class of any major metro state for Las Vegas. So it is a place that is a hospitality, tourism, and service-driven economy that has, because of the hard work of good friends of mine like Matt Hagman, who was at the Knight Foundation, is now at the Beacon Council, our kind of big chamber, and others, it began to develop a small startup ecosystem in an area of the city that was an arts and cultural area called Wynwood. And what's happened, of course, is that we've now seen this, this influx in the past year, really, I think partly prompted by this uh, lack of assault deduction, partly prompted by the, the right-wing reaction to progressive cities of high net worth real estate, finance, and now right-wing libertarian conservative techies and VCs from the Bay Area. So that's different. This is the invasion of the 0.001%. Austin has been America's leading tech hub with San Francisco for as long as I've been sentient in writing on this. When I wrote The Rise of the Creative Class, the two leading tech hubs in America, in terms of the percentage of the creative class, rankings on my creativity index, were the San Francisco Bay Area and Austin. Austin is an overnight sensation that has been 35 years in the making. I began to visit Austin in 19, the late 1980s. There was a guy named George Kosmetsky who was, had been a Carnegie Mellon professor, left Carnegie Mellon, went on to make a gazillion dollars, uh, left university life, but later founded the IC Squared Institute and, and began working and using money to attract these big federal installations like Semitech and MCC. So the Austin story is a 40-year overnight sensation. And it is sort of, aside from Silicon Valley and San Francisco and Boston, it's sort of a parallel with Seattle as the next best tech hub. And uh, it's a great place. It's the place where 20 years ago, my students at Carnegie Mellon wanted to be. My students at Carnegie Mellon or MIT students are not wanting to flock to Miami. I love Miami, but it's, it's a place that's very different. It is it is not the kind of place that attracts engineering and technical talent. It's more of a party crowd right. and people trying to get away from taxes and people who like sunny weather. Nothing wrong with that. Austin is a classical nerdy tech ecosystem and they're very different. People lump them together, but they're, they're polar opposite places. What right now, when you look at the Torontos, Minneapolis, where I'm, you know, very near, you know, cities like Kansas City, what would you be saying to places like this that are in a sense, I think, still stuck in two different worlds. The one world is the pre-rise of the creative class world where, you know, if we can just get that new, if it's Amazon H2 in, or if we can get the big business to move here. But are also, I think, have for a while now dabbled in the, how do we become a great place? How do we become a place that people want to be? What's your advice to this scale of a city? Well, I have no doubt that Toronto and Minneapolis will be just fine. I mean, Minneapolis, St. Paul, I've known for a long time, been visiting for a long time. It's a regional talent hub for the plains in the Midwest. It's a great city. It's a city, despite all of the problems that we've heard about and its own problems with inequity, compared to most other U.S. cities and metros, 
for a place that's so innovative and technologically developed, it actually has the best record on equity. It's now, no it's place in America is good. Right. Yeah, no place in America is good on this. I don't right. mean to give a pass, right. but you know, if everyone else has a D, Minneapolis, St. Paul has a C plus or it, maybe a, maybe a B minus. So yeah. way, way better. Toronto look is spectacular. It's finance, it's entertainment. It's as big proportionally to the Canadian economy as New York, San Francisco and LA. It's attracting global talent. It's attracting global capital. I mean, I think what Canada suffers from is perhaps not as rapid a response to the pandemic because it's a small economy and can't ramp up vaccine production. Or So that's become an issue, I think. But that issue will fade as we get into summer. I love Toronto. I hope to be able to spend the rest of my life there. I love the university. I love the city. You know, a little getaway in the winter when it's bitter cold is fine with me. I don't go away in the summer. So as long as I can avoid the super cold and, and other people like me, I'm happy as a clam there. I think in terms of neighborhoods, it has, it's like Minneapolis. It has like the best neighborhoods that I could imagine. The small cities are interesting. The second and third tier cities now have a new lease on life. And let me parse it this way. Here's what I think remote work really does for the knowledge worker creative class, the third of the workforce that has the ability to do remote work. And I'm writing a piece right now with Adam Ozemek, who's like the guru of remote work. We're writing a piece now on remote work in cities. In the past, if you lived in a superstar city like New York or San Francisco or LA, when you had kids, right, there are three big moves. When you graduate college, those kids are still going to the big city. The talented kids are still going to New York and San Francisco and LA and London. No doubt about that. But the second big move is when you have a family, when kids arrive for you. Most people, when that happened, can't afford. Only the super lucky or the super rich can afford to live in those cities in enough space. What they tended to do is go to the nearby suburb. So they would go to the San Francisco suburbs. They would go to the New Jersey, Connecticut, or New York suburbs. My dad, who worked in a factory in Newark, went from Newark, New Jersey, to North Arlington, New Jersey, to buy a house for mom and us, two boys. What remote work does is say, whoa, Kansas City, Tulsa, Bentonville, Iowa City. I could go, you know, Milwaukee, yeah. Cincinnati, Columbus. You have a shot at these people. Pittsburgh. You know, I wrote a book about this. Who's your city? Pick the place you live. It's the most important decision you'll make. Remote work gives the knowledge worker a bigger portfolio of choices. And then you have really smart cities like Tulsa, where I work with the George Kaiser Family Foundation, that says we are going to proactively recruit remote workers. Now Bentonville, where the Walton Family Foundation is, is headquartered, has figured this one out. So there is this move of these second and third tier cities. And at the same time, when I visit, not just Minneapolis, which has always been a great city, when I go to Bentonville, Tulsa, Kansas City, I can go down the list, Milwaukee, they have better amenities now than most of the superstar cities. They have better coffee shops, better restaurants, better co-working spaces. Why? Because those cities are more affordable. So young chefs, young entrepreneurs, young people who want to develop real estate flock to those cities because they're more affordable. So yeah, I think a subset of those cities, and you know, as much as both of us may have been a critic of Amazon HQ2, Look at the HQ2 short list. If you want to understand the rise of the rest, it's Indianapolis, Nashville, Pittsburgh, Denver, Austin. I, you know, I could go check Indianapolis, yeah, yeah. Miami. I don't think Minneapolis is on it, but it should have been on it. And you add a few more places like Minneapolis, Tulsa, Bentonville. You're going to get to about 24 rise of the rest cities. And then small places like Bozeman, Jackson Hole, Park City, Utah. And then you'll add in the college towns like Ann Arbor, Madison, Iowa City. But pretty soon... You know, if you're up to 50 places, you're up to a lot. And then there are a lot of places that just aren't competing very effectively. So I think what happens is you get a few more winners in this new era of remote work, including second tier cities in rural areas, 
and you get a lot more losers. And this necessary connection between where you work and where you live is broken, but it doesn't lift all boats. I know that you and I both are, are very empathetic to the suffering that people have had during the pandemic. But I also look at you and you look good, man. You, uh, you look healthy. You look happy. You know, you and I have both been fortunate enough to travel a lot, but also to be now the last 10 months home with people in a place. Can you just close out a little bit by talking about maybe the, the quality of life change that more and more people I think might be able to experience with remote work and with the, the kind of new America we've seen? So let me talk about both sides of that in turn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this has been in many ways the best time of my life. You know, I have a three and a five-year-old girls who I adore. I was traveling all the time. I was never heavy, but during this pandemic, I took up much more active exercise. I lost 25 pounds. I eat better. I stopped drinking. Not that I ever was a huge drinker. I stopped drinking. Now I'll occasionally have a glass of really good white or red, like maybe once a week. But for the months of the pandemic, I think because I was nervous, right, about self. It it wasn't conscious, but I think I was really nervous about going down the road of Mm self-medicating. Started to eat better, started to exercise more. I'm the fittest I've ever, and I'm an older father. I'm 63 with young kids, so I better be fit and and around for them for as long as I can be. And so I've gotten to know my girls. I've gotten to know my neighborhood, especially in Toronto. You know, I live in, a, in, in an area that's a lovely neighborhood, but was a bedroom. It's an urban neighborhood, a mile from the core, but a lot of the men would go to work. Now that most of us are at home, knowledge working, remote working, I've gotten to know my neighborhood. I've gotten to know the ravine trails. I've gotten to know the cycling. Like, oh my God, it's just been heaven. If the 0.001% are able to take the most advantage and make the most money and have the most locational choice, The next third of us, I call them the creative class, call them what you want, the privileged third, have the ability to change our lives and to make better decisions and find wellness and health and work from home and spend time with our families. That means that at least 66% of Americans are really screwed. And so I think the big thing from this pandemic, you know, the last pandemic, the 1918 Spanish flu was followed by the roaring 20s. Here come the roaring 2020s. Here they come again. And what's going to happen is these geographic and socioeconomic divides are going to widen. You know, Black and Hispanic people are two to three times more likely or five times more likely to get COVID, a couple of times more likely to die, several times more likely to be hospitalized. Black workers and Hispanic workers are far less likely, two times less likely to be able to do their jobs remotely. They have to work in service jobs or manufacturing jobs where they're close to other workers and close to the public and contact the disease. They're dependent on transit because they live in outside areas. So they they are exposed to contagion there. Their workers that make over $100,000 are more than two to three times more likely to do remote work than those that make less than 100000 So these class and geographic decisions between the capitalist class, if you will, the 0.001%, the knowledge worker and creative class, and kind of the service class and the truly disadvantaged are widening. And I think this is why I've been urging cities that now is the moment that you have to focus on both resiliency from a health and climate perspective, but you also have to focus on inclusivity. And if we miss it, there will be hell to pay. And the hell to pay will be the populism movement on the right will continue to be fueled. And the Black Lives Matter movement, which is spectacular on the left and it's outpouring of support for a more inclusive society, that will begin to gather steam and generate even more political pressure. I think the time has come really as a society to say we wanna build stronger, better, more inclusive suburbs, rural areas, and urban areas, and we can build a better way. It's not just that the privileged third get a better way, but this takes time. 
You know, my dad was born right after the Spanish flu. My mom and dad were born in the 1920s and they still had a rough go, right? Not only were they exposed, my mom and dad both nearly died of childhood diseases. My mom of diphtheria, my dad of scarlet fever, but they experienced the Great Depression. My dad had to go off and serve in World War II. And it was only when my, my mom and dad were young adults. Think about this. Young adults that the United States decided that it needed to build an economy and a society after World War II that lifted all boats and created an American dream and a middle class out of the working class. I think we have to compress that time now. Uh, look, may maybe we can do it. You know, I mean, I'm not I'm a glass half full kind of guy. These too. are very deep divides. Our society is very polarized. But look, my dad always said, Chuck, never underestimate the capacity of the United States to pull its shit together and never underestimate the capacity of America to make itself better. We got a chance now. I'm not saying we're going to take the chance, but but at least I'm going to stick, well, hopefully with you, I'm going to put my shoulder to the wheel and try to help make it happen. Let's do it. Richard Florida, you've been very generous as always. Thank you so much for taking the time and uh, let's talk again soon. And keep up doing the important work we're doing. I think, I think my closing statement is, I think at this level that we work, we have a great privilege. And that is we work with Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives who work together. That yes. doesn't happen. At the, you and I have this great privilege. We work across a political divide. We work with Republicans and Democrats, liberals, conservatives, moderates who all want the same thing. And I think if we continue to lead this effort for local change, and local yes. laboratories of innovation, we'll do it. So thank you, Chuck, for doing all the important work you do. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to see you, friend. You look great. I mean, hopefully in a few months, we'll see each other in person again. I would be love well. that. That'd be wonderful. Be you well. take care. Bye-bye. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, the city! The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.